I have uh, pretty much spent the morning whispering, trying to save my voice so that I can get through our time together. Uh, you know, you just don't know how much you like singing until you're not able to do it. So I was in here and mouthing the words, but my heart was in the right place, and I would have sung if I could. Um, I, I am really glad to be here. I just love the time we have together. I, one of the things I look forward to is after service and getting a chance just to say hello to different people and I'm going to have to skip this today uh, for your protection so you don't get what I get. I also won't be administering the Lord's Supper. Our associate pastor, Family Ministries, will be uh, officiating this morning on that. But uh, I, I never know what to do when I feel like I do today. Um, uh, you know, I, if I don't come, I feel like I'm shirking my duties, and I just really want to be here to preach. And I love teaching and just, just really do. I share it, you know, when I can, but I, I just never know what decision to make. And so I'm here, and I hope I can get through it. But uh, if not, uh, well, we'll figure out what we'll do from there. But again, I'm glad to be with you and glad to be able to share God's Word with you today. Our scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 6 and verses 19 through 21. Uh, hopefully we can get it up on the screen there, but this is what Jesus said uh, on that uh, Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field and grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you again for your grace and your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, that long before any of us ever gave you a thought, you loved us. Before we were born, you loved us. Before this world was created, you loved us and you knew what you would do to redeem us, that you would send the Son, your only Son whom you love, that you would send him into this world and that he would suffer and die for our sakes, taking our sins upon himself. And through that death and that burial and that resurrection, we have been reconciled to you forever. By putting our faith in what Christ did, we become your children now and forever. And we thank you for what you have done for us and what you continue to do in us through your Holy Spirit. So today as we gather once again around your word, we ask that you would do for us what you have done over and over again, that you would speak to us, that we would hear your voice and know that it's your voice that we would embrace your word and that we would then endeavor to put it into practice in our lives. And Father, as for me, 
once again, I, allow, I ask that you allow me to disappear behind that wonderful cross of Jesus Christ. That he and he alone would be exalted in our midst this day. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So, uh, do you want to be happy? It's really rather a silly question, isn't it? It's, of course, we want to be happy. I, I suppose there may be that rare individual out there who doesn't want to be happy and would say, oh, no, I like being miserable. I enjoy being miserable. But then being miserable makes him happy, so he really does want to be happy. That's too confusing. I just give it up. But I think it's safe to say that for most of us anyway, we really do want to be happy. So what are the kinds of things that would make you happy? Would more money do that for you? And if so, how much more money would you need? You know, that question was once asked of uh, the one of the wealthiest men in the world, and they asked it in the form, if you could have anything in the world that you wanted, what would it be? And his answer was another million dollars. He couldn't tell you how many millions he had. He couldn't spend it all if he tried, but he wanted another million dollars, and as much as he had, it didn't make him happy. And then there's fame, and you might think that would bring happiness, and yet when you look at the lives of famous people, they don't seem to fare much better than the wealthy. And the same thing could be said of the powerful. Some of the most powerful people in our country are the most discontent. The rich, the famous, the powerful, they seem to have so much and yet so little comes of it, and most of them really don't even rate a footnote in history. In one of the episodes of one of my favorite comic strips, Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin asks Hobbes, he says, what do you think the secret of happiness is? Is it money or power or fame? And Calvin said that he would choose money because if you had money, you could buy the other two. And then you could be really happy, he said. Calvin then defined happiness as uh, being famous for your financial ability to indulge in every kind of excess. And we might laugh at that when we read it in a comic strip. But all of us hear the echo of emptiness in those words. And we could go on and we could multiply examples, but the, the point's clear. There are many things in this world that people might think would bring them happiness, and that they really don't seem to. And before I go any further, I want to kind of distill all of these things that we've been talking to down into one word. And I'm going to do that because that's what Jesus did. Jesus took all of those things that we're talking about, power, popularity, money, whatever it is, and he captured their meaning in one Greek word that the King James transliterated, that is, just wrote the word in using English letters as mammon. And that word means worldly wealth. And we can try to capture its meaning by uh, saying money with a capital M. In fact, that's how the NIV translates it, money with a capital M. And you can see why that works so well, can't you? I mean, Calvin was right at least about that. Um, if you have enough money, you can buy the power and you can buy the fame. And so you remember Ross Perot and Howard Hughes and 
There's just very little of the things of this world that enough money won't get for you. And you can exchange any one of those other things for money. So that's why pro athletes get paid to talk about shoes and cereal, not because they're an expert on either, but because they're famous. And so they can turn their fame into money. Money really is this medium of exchange for the things of this world. And the world tells us that mammon, that money and all the things it can buy will make you happy. But most of us here, I think, really know better. But we see the pursuit of things, however you package it, fame, wealth, popularity, power, money, whatever it is, we, we see the pursuit of that as dead ends and detours on the road to happiness. We realize that they really don't make you happy. We're more likely to look at things a little differently. Instead, we tend to think that the lack, at least of certain things, will keep you from being happy. In other words, we don't think that having those things that mammon represents will guarantee your happiness, but we think if you don't have some of those things, it's an obstacle to it. It's the kind of negative of the world's view. And the truth of the matter is, is that even that view is a detour and a dead end to the real road of happiness. At least it is if you listen to James, the Lord's brother. He doesn't think that these things, whether you have them or don't have them, will necessarily keep you from being happy. Instead, he teaches us that the truly happy person is the person who makes his way through this life with one eye on heaven. I think that's important. The truly happy person is a person who makes his or her way through this life with one eye on heaven. And if we have one eye on heaven, then we can be happy, and I think truly happy, whether we have or we don't have mammon. But the having the not having of money with a capital N is a test of our faith that we have to overcome if we are to have that happiness. Now, you're going to remember from last time if you were here, and if you're not, don't remember, or if you won't hear, I'm going to tell you that, that when you face trials, you can overcome them, and you can become mature and complete when you face them when you endure the test, when you have God's wisdom, and when you trust God's goodness to you. So you'll persevere, and you'll become mature and complete. And today, James is going to help us to face that test of mammon by telling us what God's wisdom is when we do face it. Of course, you still have to face it, and you still have to believe that God has your best interests at heart. But if you do, then you will grow in your faith and you will become more mature and complete, not lacking anything of real value. So if you would join me, please, if you care to, in your Bible, in James chapter 1, where we're going to look at verses 9 through 12, where we're going to see what the servant of the Lord has to say to the outposts of the kingdom of God, which means you and I. 
So James is going to address both extremes of this test. He's going to address those who have mammon and those who don't. But in addressing the extremes, he's going to address the entire continuum between those extremes. And the first people that he addresses are those people that don't have money. And so we can read what they says in verse 9. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. And again, we see here James' delight in stating his idea in a shocking way. He, he gets our attention by what he says here, and he states an idea in a way that we don't easily forget. He addresses the Christian in humble circumstances who has little or none of the things of this world, and he take, tells him to take pride in his high position. And before we can take, uh, see what that high position is, we need to understand what he means by the word pride. You know, it wasn't that many years ago when in our country that word pride normally had a bad connotation. And, and, and that's the normal connotation that it has when you read it in the Bible also. To say that someone was full of pride was to assault their character uh, to its very core. And we've lost that sense pretty much in our culture today. And, and so you hear athletes openly brag about how good they really are. But there's another sense of that word. And when we use it in this other sense, it's good. And the Bible also knows that other meaning of the word. And that's the meaning that James is using here. Generally speaking, pride is bad when you have it in yourself, but it's good when it's in something other than yourself. And so we see and have seen in our country for years that pride in our community is a good thing, or pride in our church is a good thing, or pride in our work is a good thing. And when people have pride in something outside of themselves, uh, we tend to invest ourselves in it to make it even better. And that's a sense in which James is using the word here. He uses it differently in other places, but he tells the poor Christian to take pride in something outside of himself and therefore to invest himself in that. And that thing out of the side of himself is his high position. James doesn't tell us what that is. He really expects us to know. And we do know, don't we? We really don't have to be told. So we might simply say that the high position is being a member of the kingdom of God. Jesus said it this way, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He, he didn't mean that the poor uh, man by themselves, uh, when he said that, he meant the poor man who followed him. That's our high position. We are children of God, and, and we will be kings in the world to come. And James tells us that God's wisdom for facing the test of being poor is to take pride in our high position, to invest ourselves in the kingdom of God. That's how a poor man or woman keeps his eye on heaven. He may be of little or no account in the world's economy, but in God's eyes, he's special. He's worth dying. Tyra Bjorn tells a story of a 
accompanying her father, who was a pastor, uh, one evening into the mountains to the shack of a man that was a member of their church. And he was, he was crippled with age and pain, and yet when they came, he offered him what hospitality he could. And, uh, and then they prayed together. And that old man's face, she said, came alive as the agony of his present life gave way to a kind of a radiant joy. And he didn't ask God for anything at all. Instead, he thanked him in detail for his shack, for the warm bed he had, for his visitors, for everything that was part of his seemingly cramped and limited existence. And when he finished praying, she said that he looked as happy and as contented as though he had no discomfort at all. And on the way home to the dark, cold air of that fall, Thyrus' father looked down in the valley and he saw the light being lit in the parsonage in the house that they lived in. And he pointed it out to her. And the thought struck her that that's what that man saw. He saw his father's house in the distance, and he had seen that, and he knew that one day he would be there, and there would be no more sickness or pain or loneliness or sorrow. You see, that man, though he had nothing in the world's eyes, had one eye on heaven. So James isn't saying that we should be poor or that there's any inherent worth in being poor. He tells us to face the test. If that's where we find ourselves, of having little money with a capital M, then we keep one eye on heaven and knowing that we belong to Jesus Christ. Now that's one end of the spectrum. That's one end of the extreme. And the other end is the test of being rich. And before we go any further, we really have to get it clear that no matter what the Madison Avenue advertisers say, being rich really is a test of our faith. The rich man or woman faces all sorts of temptations that we don't. He can indulge himself, that he can run over people in his pursuit of things, he can be arrogant with impunity, he gets what he wants when he wants it. We don't do that with our children because it spoils them, and it's not just children that get spoiled that way. In short, the rich man can be completely self-absorbed much more easily than the man without riches. Jesus put it this way. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter heaven. Now, I know many of you probably heard the the story about the needle's eye, which is a gate in Jerusalem, right? And so it's this gate that's kind of short, and you can get a camel through it if you take the pack off of him, all the wealth off of him, and then get him down on his knees, and he can come through that gate. I should understand something. That gate wasn't there when Jesus said what he did. It was put in by Muslims hundreds of years after. That picture of a camel going through the eye of a needle is just like what we thought. That needle and that eye and trying to get a camel to go through it. That's how hard it is. And yet, with God, it's possible. 
But that's the size of the test. So we have wealthy people held up to us all the time as a model to emulate by the purveyors of our world's goods. But we're often shocked when we get a glimpse inside of their private lives. We think that they must have it made because they have so much money, but the world's goods really do bring their own set of problems. When I lived in Denver going to seminary, I worked for two extremely wealthy families. I, I, I mean, $13 million worth of art in the home of one of them. And when you work inside of their homes, you can't help but see things. One day I was in there doing my job, and there was a report laying on the desk. And I didn't read it, but I couldn't help but see the title. And the title was, The Psychological Problems of the Children of the Very Wealthy, written by a psychologist who dealt with just children of the very wealthy. You see, being rich has its own special problems and own special temptations. So what does James say to the Christian who's rich with the things of this world, who has much of mammon and money with a capital M? Well, he tells him, to to keep one eye on heaven. He just has to do it in a different way. Verse 10, it says, But the one who is rich, that is, the Christian who is rich, should take pride in his low position. Now, one of the things that our author James likes to do is he loves to play with words, and he gets our attention by phrasing things in a kind of a shocking way, and he uses words in different ways, and he plays on them. And this is a good translation because it really gets across the sense of what James is saying. But we could say it just a little differently. See, James is probably being just a little bit humorous here because the word translated low position, it means that quality of unpretentious behavior a total lack of arrogance or pride. So it's almost like James is saying, take pride in not being proud. Of course, the point he's making is really serious. You see, the bottom line sin of rich people is pride. And pride now in the negative sense is a pride that says, look at me. Look at the things that I have. It's a pride that puffs up that pride that looks down the nose at other people, the pride that causes the lip to curl and sneer at others. That kind of pride is the only disease that makes everyone sick but the person who has it. James tells the rich Christian not to be like the rich of the world. He tells them to take pride in his low position. Compared to others, he might look pretty good but compared to God, well, we see what we really are. It's a sinner that Jesus came to save. And James tells the rich man to keep an eye on heaven, remembering who he really is, and invest himself in that to be a humble man. And James understood that that test of being rich was enormous, and he, he doesn't tell the person to become poor, but he does tell them to keep one eye on heaven, and he because it's so difficult. He reminds them of a very good reason that they should have such an outlook. Verses 10 and 11 says, but the one who's rich in this world should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like the wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. 
Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. The rich man is like a cog in a machine. That cog wears out and it gets replaced, but the machinery keeps on running, but that worn part is discarded. Death awaits the rich man just as it does the poor man. But the rich man needs to be reminded of that more than the poor man. So I read this account of a guy that was being given a tour of a, of a city, of this house in, in the city, and it was one of the most famous houses that were. And the man who had built it and owned it had died, and the house then became a museum. And as he walked through it, you know, every room was better than the other. It had gold and, and, and fine wood and just all sorts of wonderful things in it. And he was asked of what he thought about it. And his reply was, these are the things that make dying hard. But death comes. And here in those two verses, James uses this powerful word picture of it was familiar in that part of the world. See, the wildflowers would be blooming. They'd be beautiful. And then that afternoon, the Soraka would begin to blow, and the sun would beat down on it. And by the end of the day, they were all dead. It happened every year, year in and year out. That death was certain, and it was swift. And so it is with the rich man. Death comes before he's ready. And God's wisdom to face the test of having that kind of thing is to keep one eye on having by remembering who you are. In fact, whatever situation you find yourself in, as far as money's concerned, having it or not having it, keep one eye on heaven if you want to face and pass that test. But how does that apply to us in this room? I mean, even if we accept what we've said so far, most of us here wouldn't call ourselves rich. Most of us here who wouldn't fall into the category of poor. We're neither rich nor poor. We're middle class. But James is talking to us. You know, the, there were middle class people in his day too. And by addressing both ends of the spectrum, he addresses us. Everything that he would say to the middle class is found here in these verses. But we are in a privileged position, you know, and uh, uh, one of the uh, Proverbs, it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. To be in the middle class means that you don't face the great temptations of the wealthy or the great hardships of being poor. And so we face those economic positions that we find ourselves in the same way the rich or the poor does, by keeping an eye always on heaven. And you do it depending on the situation you find yourself in. So you see, when you're middle class, it seems sometimes you find yourself as though you're poor. You, you lack the means, the influence, the ability, the money, whatever it is, you just don't have it. In such a situation, you have to have your eye on heaven, remembering your high position. We belong to God. But being middle class means that in other situations, we do have what it takes. We do have money. We do know the right people. We could hurt somebody's career or reputation. And then we have to have an eye on heaven, remembering what we are 
sinners saved by the grace of our God. That's God's wisdom for facing the test of our economic condition, whatever it is. Always keep one eye on heaven. Now, <clears throat> we've spent this whole time talking about those things, the things of money. Uh, we think that they're either the keys to our happiness by having them or they're an obstacle standing in our way because we don't have them. And both those ways of thinking really are dead ends and detours. James has told us that they're nothing more than a test, a test of our faith, and he's told us how to face that test. Keep an eye on heaven. But I'm going to tell you something. You won't do that. You can't do that unless there's something in heaven that means more to you than the things in this world. If that's true, if there's something, or rather someone in heaven that means more to you than the things in this world, then you'll begin to know what real happiness is now, here, in this lifetime. And that's what verse 12 tells us. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, blessed is one of those words that we hear all the time and we don't know exactly what it means. Let me give you a quick definition. It means joyful in a holy and unending way. Uh, that definition will help you and serve you well. Joyful in a holy and unending way is what blessed means. And I say joyful rather than happiness because happiness is a lighter world and joy finds its roots in our soul. We're not happy in the midst of the hardships, but we can know joy. And it's holy and it's pure because it comes from God and what God gives us doesn't take away. And I want you to notice what it says there in that verse. It says, blessed, having this holy and unending joy is the man. The test doesn't say he will be blessed. It says he is now here in this life, not just later, but now in this life. At least he knows the beginning of it. But who's in that statement? Oh, it's the blessed. It's the man who perseveres under trial, and he's going to receive a crown of life, and he's going to, he's going to retur uh, receive eternal life, and he's going to have that reward that's given to those who love God. They are the only those who love God will inherit eternal life. Those who love God will keep their eye on heaven. Those who love God will persevere. Those who love God will know joy now in this world, holy and unending. Not the full thing, maybe, but enough. The beginning of an ocean to come. The world tells you that money will make you happy. And the more you have of it, the happier you'll be. It tells you that not having it means sorrow. But both of those ideas are merely dead ends and detours. The wisdom of God says that all of that is merely a test. The having or the not having. It's only a test of our faith. The wisdom of God says that true happiness is found if you pass that test. And the way you pass it is to keep one eye always on heaven. And if you pass that test, 
you'll know joy. It'll take root in your soul, which is holy and unending. And things are going to call to you. Mammon is going to entice you, if you have it or if you don't. Money will promise you happiness, but it lies. How can that which is dead give life which is living? Money, it's like Nutrisweets or saccharin. It's an artificial sweetener. And if that's your whole diet, you'll die of malnutrition. Joy, it's a lie. It's a gift of the living to the living. It's a promise that God holds out to his own. Here in this life, we taste it, not yet in its fullness, but it's food. It's real food. And sometimes it comes to us uh, with bitter seasons that the trials of life surround the taste of joy. And sometimes it comes with delightful garnishes, the good things of this world abound. But the man who loves God woman who loves God. That person finds joy wherever he turns. Sometimes a taste. Sometimes a meal. But always with a promise of an unending life. I don't care how much money you have. Joy waits for you. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Would you pray with me? Father, please help us because we live in this world that exalts the material. And our tendency is to turn from that which is matters the most to those things that seem to demand our attention. Forgive us, Lord, for straying from the truth of your word. Teach us day in and day out to keep one eye always on you, trusting you with everything that we have. And it's in Jesus' name.